1: Hello, Vass here with this week's podcast. Our guest is Anish Kapoor. Anish was the first living artist to take over the Royal Academy with a record-breaking blockbuster exhibition. He's the recipient of a Turner Prize, a Knighthood, an Oxford Doctorate and the Lennon Ono Prize for Peace. He joined Matthew Stadlin earlier this year for a live stream, in-conversation event looking back on an extraordinary life and career.
2: When I met you in person, we were in your studio in in London, and that was probably back in about 2010 for the BBC, and it was an incredible space in itself. Will you talk to us just a little bit to start with about how important your immediate environment is to you as an artist?
3: Yes. So you're right, I do have a good bit of space that allows me to experiment. In fact, I have six different rooms in, in my studio in each of which different things happen. Sculpture is a strange process. One of those uh, uh, spaces is a painting studio, which is where at the moment I spend most of my time. But sculpture is a curious process. Things take an awfully long time to happen. To make an object takes a while. So I have, um, I think it is seven, seven assistants, working with me in the studio, each in different studios. And I work with them. So I spend part of my day in each studio, working with different people. They've all been with me, bless them, for years and years, some 25 years, so a good long time. And in a way, it's not a factory. I mean, I I once, very early in my career, wrote on my studio wall, I will never be a worker in my own factory. One of the problems with success in all, of almost any kind is that you turn into a version of yourself. You do what you're supposed to do. I say, forgive me, everyone. Fuck that. I'm not doing it. I think being an artist isn't about producing product. We live in a very, very strange time. The art world is the strangest place where it doesn't require, it doesn't want newness. It wants the same as you did before. So one has to manage that very, very carefully. How do you, how do I, quite honestly, make sure That I have enough coming in, I'm talking about money, of course, to keep my practice really going and still do what comes from within and not do what the art world expects. It's a very, very difficult thing to to truly maintain. So the studio is a place of experimentation. Most of what happens there, I'd say half of what happens there, doesn't work. And that's okay. Who gives a shit about what I know? I'm not interested in what I know. I am not interested in what I know. My job as an artist is to look for those things I don't know. How do I do what I don't know? And that I think as an ongoing process requires a kind of a deep inner life. It's the only way to put it. It requires a kind of reflection on being of a certain kind, a certain kind of reflection. Um, And one last thing, I, I know you're dying to ask me something else, so one last thing. I'm going to say, I've been in psychoanalysis for too many years. No, I'm no longer in psychoanalysis, but I was. And I've been in Zen practice for many years. And in Zen, there is a wonderful saying. It says, first idea, best idea. So I truly try and live by that. That is to say, I'll go to the studio. I try not to think about what the hell I'm going to do. I'll do a drawing on the wall, mostly on the wall, because I love drawings on the wall, and go for it. Say, that's what we're going to do. So I keep telling my team, don't think, do. That's what I try to do too.
2: And had an impossible number of strands to pick up from that answer, but I'm <laughs> sorry. Start, start with this. Are you sort of saying that if you uncouple the need to earn money, the need to make a living from being an artist, in other words, if you become so wealthy that you don't really need the money anymore, that the arts risk suffering?
3: Well, I understand. Now, money is a very curious thing. Remember that artists don't make objects. The real artist doesn't make objects. Artists make mythological propositions, I'm going to say. Mythological propositions are to do with the way a thing comes to have poetic resonance, to use a kind of um phrase. Money, I say, is part of poetic resonance. You know, when you see a Picasso on the wall and it's worth, for argument's sake, 150 million, part of what you're looking at is the valueless, of money or 150 million whichever depending on how you see it and it's part of this strange process of transforming the object after all it's bloody paint and a, and a or a collage or a bit of bit of stuff who cares transforming it into this other this other reality this other thing that's what we do We live, we're just ordinary people. I'm a perfectly ordinary person, you know, with all the bullshit that comes with being ordinary. But I do deeply believe in the idea that there are moments in ordinariness that jump and do something else. What? Where did that come from? And my job is to recognise what they are. I'm not answering your question, however or maybe I am answering your question by saying that money is part of the pursuit, but we are not producers of luxury goods. Picasso once said, painting is war. It is not decoration for your living room. That is where it's at, I believe.
2: And you've also got to get the balance right, as I understand it, between impressing the big figures of the art world and also being popular. Because if you become too popular, your argument might go, well, Disneyland's just up the
3: road. Correct. It's a tough one. It's a tough one. The art world, ah, uh, you know, who cares about bloody art world? It takes a long time to, 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 to truly believe that, though, to say, you know, art world, pwah, phooey to the art world. But um, it takes a lot of success as well to be able to say that. Something like that. But, but... Disneyland. You know, when I first made the work in, in Chicago, Cloud Gate, which is this big bean-shaped, known of, of course, colloquially as a bean object. It's about, let's say, it's about twenty-four meters long, fourteen or fifteen meters wide, and about twelve meters high. So it's big, but not not enormous compared, especially with those very very big buildings in Chicago. And it's horizontal. Anyway. When I first made it, there were pictures of thousands and thousands of people around it. And I thought, oh, no, oh, no, it's popular. Oh, God, that's a disaster. This was in 2000 or 2001, just before the selfie, just before, you know, that was all beginning to happen. Anyway, and so I decided I'd go to Chicago and sit with it and ask myself, you know, is this Disneyland? Disneyland. Is this another attractive object? I sat with it, you know, day after day for four or five days. And something strange took place. I knew it, but I didn't realize that it was possible. And that is this very, very mysterious thing called shifting scale. Now, the bean has its one skin with no joints. We never see objects with no joints, hardly ever anyway. So it has no scale you can't measure anything against it you can't tell you know a joint gives you all buildings have joints they give you there's a door a window it gives you a sense of how big the thing is by the number of windows or whatever a variation on such a theme even a ship has a scale somehow albeit very 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 big um, but that's one of the few objects you know big big ocean liner The outside of it, there are very few joints. You can't really tell how big it is. It looks much bigger than it really is. Similarly, this thing looked enormous when you were close to it, and then not so big when you were hardly a few metres away. And I thought, that's its real mystery. Shifting scale, immeasurability. And scale, of course, is a poetic entity. Had you intended that? I kind of. Ah, intended is a difficult one. I kind of sense that it could happen, but did I know it intellectually? No, no. Space
2: is a crucial word for you in what you do. And when we spoke before many years ago, you talked about creating a space for the viewer, for the audience, so that they can use their imagination. Mm. Mm. Location, geography, setting, environment are also vitally important elements of space. When you create something for somewhere like Chicago, and you say the Bean is big, but it's not big compared to the big buildings, Mm. are you acutely aware of the environment in which you're setting it? Do you go to Chicago? Do you do a recce? Does it matter
3: that the Bean is in, in Chicago and not in New York or not in Los Angeles? Okay, I mean, lots of questions there. So the first one is about the viewer. The first part of what you said was about the viewer. I've said again and again, and I mean, I have nothing to say as an artist. I don't have some message to give the world. It's not what it's about. I keep thinking of, you know, Mel Brooks's film, uh, Blazing Saddles. I keep thinking of, I think if I'm not wrong, the lady in it is, um, there's this wonderful uh, performer in the bar and she's called, um, I think she's called Madeline Klein. Anyway, whatever. Whatever the actress, at one point she gets up on stage and and looks and she puts her arms like this and then goes, "I'm so tired of being admired." And I've often thought to myself, "I'm so tired of being inspired." What do I mean? I mean that it has zero, virtually zero, to do with the real question. The real question is about practice, about continuity, about the way that, as in psychoanalysis, you know, you go and lie down on the couch and you start talking, oh, my dad did this to me and my mother did that to me, or whatever else it is. And before you know it, the next day you come in and you say something similar. And then you say something similar. And there is what one might call the deep content, some deep thing that you keep returning to. It is much the same in studio practice. You begin something and it it forms a language. And then your job as the artist is to look at that and really work with it. It's an alchemical, I'm going to dare to say, process of deep transformation that occurs in this recurring content. So having something to say, inspiration. Ah, Who cares? Who cares? The point is that practice to keep returning. So since I have nothing to say, the point of the work is to find a place that gives real room to the viewer. So when I make a void, a void is like a, a hollowed out form with a deep dark color in it. It's nothing. It's just a a dark hole or a or a hole in the ground descent into limbo. And one might say, why is that art? Perfectly good question. Why is it art? What happens there is, I hope anyway, and I, I, I trust, is that it's not a dark blue hole. It's a deep, deep, deep darkness. A darkness that I know in there. A darkness that you also know. I don't have anything to say, but what it's what it is is some fundamental content that you and I both share at some at some level. It gives space to you as the viewer to say, "Is this something you're afraid of? Is this where you came from? Is this where you go when you die, or whatever variation on such on such a question?" So that's one kind of space. That's one kind of space for the viewer to make the work. Marcel Duchamp was very, you know, sometimes a visionary in his statements about these things. And one of the things he talked about was the idea that a work is never complete without the viewer, but that the work must leave space for the viewer. So these two things are like this with each other. So that's one kind of space. Then you're talking about the space of an object. Um, Objects are very curious things. We can never look without love, hate, Desire, I want that, I hate that, or whatever else. And space plays a very, a a kind of fundamental role in in that equation. Public space, however, is a curious thing, very curious thing. Let's say before the 19th century, there was a tradition, a kind of communal understanding of how public space could work. It was part of, we understood, that you know, you, you had a square with an object in the middle, or you had, you know, there was there was a common language of public engagement. After the 19th century, especially after the war, the Second World War, that is, we seem to have completely lost that. Modernism has lost all these, or many of these communal languages. What's left, however, is the earth and the sky. So in putting a work outside, urban or otherwise, you have to deal with the earth and the sky. And I think you have to deal somehow or the other with the problem and question of communal engagement. And you're one of the rare people, and this is why I was asking the question, who is
2: valued both by the art world and by we, the people. And so I have to try and, I have to try and understand what you see your talent is If you're neither the producer of objects, as you said earlier, and nor do you have anything to say, what is your great skill? God God
3: knows. (laughs) I truly, truly, deeply believe in this nebulous mission that is, forgive me for being highfalutin and stupid, but that is the poetic. I mean, I've used that word a number of times now, but I truly believe that... In it lies our humanity. In it lies our frailty and our unknowing. And it is that 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 I take on for myself. And I hope those who care about these things take it on with me, alongside me, or whatever that is. So just
2: to take, take that thought just a little bit further, if, if I'm, or any of us, are standing in, one, in front of one of your great works, I'm, I'm thinking, for example, this wonderful sort of deep-coloured bowl-shaped thing, yes. or perhaps yes. some of the mirrors, and you do a lot of work with mirror, and the word perspective, I think, is something we probably have to touch yes. on. You haven't already. But if I'm standing in front of that, I, I know you're not going to be prescriptive, and I don't want you to be, But what do you sort of hope I might feel? And in your wildest dreams, do you hope that I might leave that space and take something of it with me?
3: (sighs) Okay, Matt, the weird thing is that I don't make art for you. I make art for me. And that's a terrible thing to say, isn't it, in a way? And I'm also, I hope, the harshest critic of my own work. It takes sometimes takes a while, and I do find that it's necessary to have a work leave the studio and go into the world before I can really, really, really see it. But I will not shy away from saying, mm, that's a good work, or uh, not, not good enough, or whatever else. And I feel, I suppose, that if it has space for me, space... If it confuses me, look, look, most of the world, most of what we know, most of the objects we live with, almost every single object we live with, I would dare to say even every single object we live with is completely knowable. There's very, very rarely in a lifetime you come across something where you go, huh, what's that? Imagine, imagine that one could make one such thing, one such thing that's as mysterious as those objects out there in the universe. There are a few objects in art, very, very few, very few, that have that curious quality where you kind of ask, what? Where did that come from? What is it? Without asking you to be, to blow your own trumpet, Anish. I'm
2: not, I'm, I hope I'm not going to, but anyway, yes. <laughs> can, you, can you draw a line between you and Michelangelo? Oh, God, no. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm being serious. If you, if, you ta- if you take ego out of it for a second, you are our most important living doctor, certainly in this country and arguably in the world. Now, I'm not asking you to compare yourself to Michelangelo, but do you sort of do you see yourself as an inheritor in some way of his legacy? Oh my God, that's a tough, that's a tough one. I, I don't really know how to answer you. I think you, you should, see artists as uh, connected with each
3: other through the generations and through the so centuries. No question. Or everything one does without any doubt, everything one does is connected somehow or the other to something that somebody else did. So while history um, looks to this kind of lineage as a process, Michelangelo, I mean, it's tough, of course, a great, great, great maker of form, great maker of form and, and, and balance. And, and in a way, this cliche that uh, is attributed to him, you know, that the form resides, if you like, within the block and that, he, that all he did was reveal it. Uh, yes and no. And, and there's a very strong sense of that in his Prisoners. Exactly, but they don't actually exactly. fully emerge from the you world. precisely. Well, it's either that or they're unfinished works, and so, so 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 somewhere there. And if you know, forgive me, but if if I could talk about myself for one second, one of the things I've tumbled into is that all objects, while they are fully material, they're also deeply immaterial. So I take that as a fundamental kind of evasive, difficult bit of content. And what am I going to do with that? All objects are immaterial or have immaterial propensity. So I've been working for years and years and years on various. So you mentioned the, 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 the big void forms, um, but various variations on, you know, whether it's stainless steel works or other works of variations on this idea of the immaterial objects, or the material, non-material object, the non-object is what I call it. In psychoanalysis, the non-object has a very particular reality. It's it's as if the object within is even more object-like than the object uh, physically represented in the world. So the latest version of that for me, just to, to chart it, is in a way, the opposite of Michelangelo. Michelangelo's revealing the object. So I've been working with this super black paint, this super black material. What it does is literally, and I say literally, make objects disappear. So if the proposition, you know, the Renaissance, let's say, uh, and I put very broadly put Michelangelo in there too, it's a bit whatever. What It, it had two at least two great, let's say, visual moments. One is perspective, place the individual at the centre, and then the world kind of does this, so to speak, in the distance, okay? The other is the fold, the fold, the fold, in, a, in fabric, all those wonderful paintings with, with the fold. The fold, of course, is all about being. It says, I the man, you, the woman, whatever, your being is represented by this fabric, by this fold, by this thing. This material is such, I'm talking about the black now, that if you put it on a a fold, you can't see the fold. It's gone, it's gone. I say, therefore, it is beyond being. Now, I'm making very, very grand claims, it is, the blackest material in the universe, not which, in the world. Which, which you invented. Well, I didn't invent it. Somebody else, a, a scientist, invented it. Um, but I've worked with it now for a good many years. He and I have entered a kind of collaboration. It's a oh, headache of a complicated thing. You know, we started out, he started out, being able to make things about this big, an inch square. We can now make them about that big. Um, 30 30 inches square, I'm hoping we can go bigger, but we'll, we'll see. The point I'm making here though, is that in this mythological process of this super black material, the proposition is that the object has an otherness, which perceptually is utterly confusing and is the opposite of Michelangelo. Deeply related to Michelangelo, the opposite of a thing is always related to the thing, but you understand where I'm coming from.
2: I wanted to, and that's going to be the subject of the academia exhibition, um, is it not? In part, in part, yes. Let's take a step back for a moment. When I interviewed Tracey Emin and spent quite a bit of time with her for a BBC doc and a five-minute interview, as I did with you, yeah. you showed me some of her drawings. And, of course, she's famous, isn't she, for sort of playing around with tents and beds and, you know, what? but she earned the right, I think, to do that because her draftsmanship, her drawings were just, I thought, incredibly brilliant. Mm -hmm. Do you feel... I mean, are you a good draftsman, dare I ask? And do you feel that, that you, as it were, earned the right to play with these enormous scales... or or, or how much was talent and luck and how much did you actually go through the nitty-gritty? Because you went to art school in India and then in the early 70s you came and did two art schools here in Britain. Do you kind of feel you went on a similar journey, a conventional journey or not?
3: I mean, it's a very complicated thing that, again, skill is, you know, I mean, one might ask a simple question, is the hand of the artist overrated? Probably yes, yes. I mean, it depends on what you do, doesn't it? I think I draw rather beautifully, actually, but but that's beside the point. No, um, I wasn't suggesting otherwise. But, no, 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 suggest otherwise. I don't, it doesn't matter. You can suggest otherwise. It's really not a problem. But I don't believe that's the real issue. I mean, it may be for, for Tracy. I understand that it, it may be for, for Tracy. But it really, it's not about the hand. It's about, for me anyway, It's it's much more... I dare I say esoteric than that. For example, I've been another one of these things I tumbled into, a very Indian thing, I should say, is the idea of the auto-generated object, the object that makes itself. So in the Royal Academy, I put a great big wax of, a block of wax, like 20 through the door. Yeah. And it went very, very, very slowly through the doors of the Royal Academy. Uh, in one side of the gallery. Slowly,
2: Slowly oozing, but powerfully.
3: Yes, oozing and squeezing itself through like some terrible, terrible train of death or, 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 or whatever, however one, one could. Um, but the proposition is that it made itself. There it was an object in the process of making itself. Now, where, wh- why is that art? One might reasonably ask, why is that art? I'm not going to answer the question, but I am going to propose the idea that it's not just a thought. It's also a physical fact. It was also made of the most blood red, deep, dark, dark red, waxy, painty kind of stuff. And had, I think, because of that, because colour is so deeply mysterious, all kinds of resonance with who we are, what we are, what happens to us, et cetera, et cetera.
2: Location and environment were very, very important there, I imagine, for you in anticipating the work or in creating the work because you knew it was going to be a living, breathing exhibition. Mm. And in a sense, we, the audience, are participating in the journey of the work because we're witnessing this apparent evolution. Correct. I've got to ask you this as well, Anish, because earlier you talked about the demands to stay the same and not to be new. How do you avoid being a self conscious artist?
3: How do you sort of consciously be unself conscious? I think you have to teach yourself that. Yes, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. In 1983, I did a show in New York. I'd been reasonably successful in London before then, but I was a young artist. I was some. I was 25 years old, 26 years old, whatever. Anyway, I did this show in New York. We sold every single thing within 10 minutes. And everywhere I went in New York, everyone was telling me, wow, you're an amazing artist. Wow. Endlessly, endlessly, endlessly. And I I found it wonderful, of course. And then I came back to London and I couldn't work. I couldn't do anything. I tried, and I just couldn't get those stupid words out of my head. I couldn't, couldn't, couldn't. I had six horrid months. I mean, awful, awful, months, awful months. When I, I feel, felt as if I'd just completely lost my way because I believed that fucking bullshit. And so I, one day I went to my studio, and I wrote my, on my studio wall, because I love my studio wall, as I said earlier, don't believe your own bullshit. And I've have... tried since then not to believe my own bullshit. <laughs> harder and harder and harder. <laughs> I'm sorry. What? It must get harder and harder. Well, not really. Not really. You know, you learn how to. You learn how to be mature about success and all the rest of it. Like everything else, you know, it's still got to get up in the morning and still got. What am I going to do today? I, I have a regime. I, I make a work every single day, Saturday Sunday every day. But every day, I make a work, at least one work every day, and it keeps it sane, You know that means I have to think of a. I mean, I have to think, or I have to feel a work more, more like feel a work every day. But that doesn't mean you have to. You have to leave your family home and go into the studio on a Sunday. And luckily, at the moment where we are here, I have a little studio down just just next door here so I can go in there and, and uh, take a few hours. yeah.
2: And your other half puts up with that?
3: Bless her, yes. <laughs> <laughs>
2: you said before, Anish, that an artist's job is to be lost. You've also said that, in a way, an artist is a fool on a journey of discovery, and the sort of mysterious mythology of the work of art is in the discovery that, that, that you, you come to. How much of your end result, is in the idea from the very beginning, the the sowing of the seed, the inception of it, and how much of it is in the journey once you've
3: had the idea? I'll answer that question in this way. Um, I was asked to do a show at a a very difficult but beautiful space in Vienna, and I've been uh, thinking about what to do, what to do, what to do, what to do. So one day I went into the studio and had an idea, stupid idea, I'm going to put a cannon in the middle of the room and I'm going to shoot wax pellets, red wax pellets into the corner. So being a stupid bloody artist, I did it. I went to the museum. We, no, obviously I made the cannon and then we went to the museum and just shot at the corner. And astonishingly, all sorts of things occurred that I just, what? Where the hell did all that come from? So what occurred? First of all, the corner is a foundation of culture the corner is if you like without without a corner there is no architecture at least of a certain kind the canon there's a kind of sexual psychodrama going on between the canon and the corner the corner becomes feminine the canon's this male kind of aggressive bleh, yeah. thing so there's a whole almost duchampian opposites alchemical opposites throwing throwing you know, very aggressively. It's very aggressive. It makes a hell of a lot of noise and all that. Then, astonishingly, there's Jackson Pollock because this stuff goes splat and it's all over the place. So it speaks to a certain kind of painting. Then there's Goya, the massacre of the innocents. Now, I promise you, I didn't think one of these things. They occurred in the making of the work. So uh, back to... Back to Zen, first idea, best idea. Next thing is trust yourself. Without wishing to be sort of too pompous or anything. Yeah. Does this mean that, in a way,
2: you, you sort of see yourself as a vessel? Um, and I, 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 whether there's a god or a divinity or something, but you're, you obviously have a skill, you have a talent, you're aware of that, and then you kind of let it, let it almost as you were saying with the Michelangelo, You would contrast yourself with Michelangelo, but there was a sense in which he was revealing what was already within the rock. And there's a sort of revelation in your
3: process, right? Yeah. Um, I'll go back to Duchamp. Duchamp says, the artist reveals mystic truth.
1: This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II, and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House, and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered, and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before.
0: This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe, Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com.
2: Color. Color. Yeah. Tell me how important
3: color is to you because we talk a lot about scale, about space. Colour is absolutely fundamental, fundamental, fundamental. I mean, you know, I started my career making sculpture out of pigment, colour pigment. It is both stuff and not stuff. The thing of, you know, the, which it's both material fact and ephemeral illusion. Um, and I'm deeply interested in colour in all its forms. Of course, the colour I feel most strongly about is red. Um, I've,
2: red is a huge part of your paintings.
3: Yes, I've come to red again and again and again over Why? many years.
2: Why? And what does it mean to you at its most
3: basic level? I, I suppose the proposition that objects have non-object reality speaks to the idea that there's an interior and the interior is red. Red is, if you like, the world turned inside out. And I've worked with it again and again. There are two ritual materials. One is blood. There's a wonderful anthropologist called Chris Knight. Read his book, uh, everyone please, Blood Relations. Wonderful, wonderful book about the idea that culture originates with women. Women in menstruation, women giving blood, in other words, women who live together, so that so it so it goes, uh, menstruate together, and blood becomes so they and what they did was uh, cover their bodies in red ochre, blood of the earth, in other words, as a sign of solidarity, Marxist solidarity, real deep solidarity, and and, and the idea is that they then made the first acts of culture, which were probably dance together. Anyway, but blood flows downwards. It's the interior, it's body, it's... Of course, the second ritual material is earth. And I keep returning to, to these two. These This idea that blood and earth are intimately connected with each other and, form the basis for almost everything, mythically and physically. Then there's blue. All the gods of the feminine world who are red and earthbound live and die. They bleed, they go down into the ground, they disappear, they re-emerge like the trees, like pregnancy, like whatever else, okay. Men don't bleed. So men had to invent bleeding. We did circumcision and we did hunting. That's all we can do. So what did we do? We took all the the gods and put them in the sky. They're all blue. Almost every single male god is blue. And they don't bleed and they don't die. And they sit in judgment on us. Sorry, forgive me. But they do. They sit in judgment. The female gods don't sit in that judgment. So blue is complicated. It becomes, it's, it's, it's got a layer of culture that is hierarchical, difficult, judgmental, etc., as I just said. So blue is problematic. But there is one other thing about blue which I do love, which is this. I mean, I find this part of blue very problematic. And then there's something about blue which I love. Our eyes can't focus on certain kinds of blue. They're always out of focus. There's a certain kind of Prussian blue that I've used a lot. Actually, this sofa next to me here is Prussian blue. And you can't focus on it. So it makes for, which is why I made those void works in deep, dark, Prussian blue, because you can't see it. Rather, you can't fully grasp it. it. It's always illusory. It's always coming and going. That's one of the beauties of blue. You like this idea of the illusory. You like yes, the idea I do. of confusion
2: as well. When, you're, when we're looking into the mirrors yes. of some of the shapes, Yes, you sort of like the idea that we might be a bit lost, we might not be quite knowing, we might be a bit disorientated. How aware are you of the artists that surround you? Both the past we talked about, but I'm thinking really more your, your sort of fellow contemporary artists. And is there one? And this isn't the excuse, exclusion of others, but we just don't have time. Is there one artist that you really, viscerally and passionately love?
3: Oh, my God. I think um, working today is much more confusing. There's David Hammons, uh, Carolee Schliemann, who's a, a, an American performance artist. There, there are quite a few, quite a few. It's confusing, though. It's confusing because culture is now not monosyllabic, meaning it's not male and white. I was going to say gender. We haven't talked about gender. No, quite. Do you think think men and women are different as artists? Not really. Not really. I don't think men and women are that different as artists. It's to do... um, You know, one could argue that there's a different language to the creative spirit in a woman. But really, is that a big issue? I don't think it is. I don't think it is at all it's really to do with whether it can have deep resonance why shouldn't it
2: okay i'm I'm going to ask you a a question that bridges i hope what we've been talking about with what we'll try and find a little bit of time to talk about and that is your your own background so your mother was i believe an iraqi jew which makes you jewish yes and your father was indian They, they, they brought you up in mumbai How much Indianness, and I appreciate that there are well over a billion people in India, so being Indian means a myriad of things, but how much sort of Indianness is there in your work? And is there any sort of
3: Jewishness in your work? I feel incredibly fortunate. I mean, God Almighty, so lucky to have been born into two great, great, great traditions very, very different from each other on the face of it, but not, not, not in reality. So how much Indianness is there in my work? I would say, well, I grew up there. My whole visual world, if you like, in the growing up, in the, was formed there. Um, it's hugely Indian at one level. And a lot of colour, uh, of course, in India, yeah. right? Yeah. So, I mean, not just colour, though, content. A lot of, a lot of things that I keep returning to And then, you know, Jewishness, equally so. It's a huge, huge thing for me. This continual return, if you like, to the judgmental, patriarchal. um, So whereas one is matriarchal, Indian culture at its best anyway, is a powerful goddess, a very, very all-encompassing powerful goddess, Kali, for example. The other side, of course, is this... Jewish judgmental God, but they both play with sacrifice. They both play with the idea of the beginning of things coming from ritual death. And I've become more and more and more interested in that.
2: So I'm going to ask you, I'm going to limit myself. This is painful, because we could go on talking about art all day and we could talk (laughs) about politics into the weekend, but we're only on Monday. I'm going to ask you three questions in the sort of political current affairs world. I'm going to ask you about the British government, where we are in this country. I'm going to ask you about what the hell's going on in Israel. And I'm going to ask you first about India and Modi, because very recently you gave an incredibly impassioned interview to John Snow on Channel 4 about how outraged you felt on the subject of what's going on over there at the moment. Well, I
3: mean, what's going on in India is... Beyond belief, India is, as you earlier, as you said earlier on, multivarious culture with all these different wonderful strands that colonialism, British colonialism, couldn't bring together. However, we now have neo-colonialism in the form of the fascist Modi, and I use that word because it's the word I mean to use, who is. Um, Looking to impose Hinduism, Hindutva, as you say, all aspects of Indian life. Let's not forget there are about 180 million Muslims in India, about 300 million tribal people in India, etc., etc. I could, you know, we could list them all. An appalling, appalling kind of suppression you know, by, by removing the right to vote, the removing the right to, be, to, to citizenship and all sorts of horrors. But sadly, the worst horror of all is not to be put just at Modi's door. And that is that India has, 60% of its population live in what I would call concentration camp, and I use that phrase because I mean it, uh, poverty. Poverty at levels that is unimaginable. People don't have enough to eat in this day and age. India's the sixth richest country in the world. How can it be? The sad truth is though, that they are the invisible. There's never been an anti-poverty march in India. Never, ever, ever. These people are 800 million. You know, if you say 60%, that's 800 million people are in this condition of invisibility. And we continue. We live so well because they live so terribly. And um, so they get coronavirus. They'll die. Millions of them will die. Millions and millions will die. Who gives a shit? Let them die. And that's the attitude. You walk down the street in India, you can throw a piece of paper or whatever else on the street. You never have to pick it up because there's always someone lower than you who will pick it. And that's the general attitude. It's appalling, how the fucking Indians, how can we allow this to happen? Black Lives Matter named George Floyd, a man who he's got a name, he's a real person. Does one Indian in this position, does one Indian have a name? They're nameless, faceless, invisible, invisible. To Indians too, I say that. So, oh Christ. And this government, they couldn't give a shit. Let them die. Because they're a drain on the national economic reality.
2: So that <laughs> brings us to the British government, the post-Brexit, but also Brexit delivery, which <laughs> is now scrambling yeah. to do a trade deal with India, amongst yeah. other countries, to, to cozy and to cosy up to Modi such that some believe the reason that India wasn't put on the red list until it was, was not to irritate or upset Modi. So what do you have to say about the British government and politics in this country now?
3: You know, we, like everybody else, have have, um, lurched to the right. It's a great, great sadness that uh, Brexit has come from hyper-nationalism and we, can you believe, that that buffoon Boris managed to sell to sell Brexit to the British people. I I find it hard to believe, but there it is. And we've had um, a continuation. You know, one could argue that Tony Blair carried on what Margaret Thatcher started, and David Cameron carried on what Tony Blair started, and now we seem not to have any, any other way to think than the one offered by Boris and his cronies, um, um, half, you know half the people in power there are, are of Indian origin, much to my shame, and they are, um, let us say, even more right-wing than the leader himself. I can't believe it, but there it is. And the whole thing is leading us to, or rather coming out of, a fantasy that Britain can be some kind of colonial power again. It can't. Britain's irrelevant in real world terms. And I think the sooner we realize that we have our role to play, but it isn't world statesmen, the better it is for us to have reality. According to me, the EU, it's a, whatever, bureaucratic, whatever, but it's a great peace project, you know, 70 years of peace that we've left it, it's a huge step backwards, huge. Ah, oh, I hang my head in shame. Israel, and we could talk about what's going on there again. <laughs> uh, oh, you do want to dump me in it, don't you? Anyway, yes,
2: yes. I'm going to let you speak, and whatever you say, whether I disagree with it or not, I'm not going to come back... To- you oh, can come yeah. back if you like. I yeah, don't well, mind. But, but I also, think we... Whatever you say there's likely to be someone or a lot of people who feel differently. So I mean, with that caveat, go but, on.
3: But I, but I do feel it's, you know, disgraceful. Um, I think one has to be very clear. I'm Jewish. I think you're Jewish too, my dear. Now, I know that we can both be anti-Zionist without being anti-Semitic. There is a huge, huge, huge difference. And it seems that today these things get conflated with each other, incorrect. So we can say Netanyahu is a disgraceful human being, long, long, long standing of long, that's uh, proved over and over and over again. And his will to bomb into submission, people, the, the Palestinians, it's just, uh, give me a break. You can't, you can't, it's not possible. Anyone bombing anyone else isn't great. I don't excuse Hamas for doing what they're doing, but, but, but it's, it's, you know, the difference is vast. There has to be a human way through this. Amos Oz, the great Israeli writer said before he died, the Jews came out of the ghetto, but the ghetto never left the Jews. And it's as if we're reenacting in Israel this ghetto mentality that seems to want to isolate, insulate um, us Jews from our neighbours. Come on, it's it's old-fashioned, out-of-date, impossible, at a human level, unlivable. We have to change it. I will just just
2: say this, because it's important that I understand why you say we Jews, but of course yes. there's a huge difference between the Israeli government and you and me. No, Of course. We are not accountable and should not be accountable. No, no, we're not. We're not. We're not remotely I wonder, accountable. I wonder whether you agree with me on this. Like, I'm just so tempted to ask you. I think it's helpful when British Jews do speak out against the policies of the Israeli government when they see fit, because it reminds people... And there's no excuse for anti-Semitism. The only people responsible for anti-Semitism are the anti-Semites. But there's also no doubt that the actions of the Israeli state in recent years is a recruiting sergeant for anti-Semitism. And therefore, I think it is helpful if the likes of you and I speak out against Israel's behaviour where we see fit.
3: I've completely agreed. I mean, the great, liberal, the great liberal movements of the 20th century were... Uh, many of them were Jewish, and the ones of the 19th century were certainly Jewish. Marx himself was Jewish, as, as I think was Engels. So there is a huge, huge, huge tradition in Jewish thought for open-minded, broad-minded thinking. And I absolutely refuse to be, to be categorized in this extreme position taken by um, the Israeli Israeli government. Anish, there's
2: a brilliant question here from Emma in the Q&A. Within experimentation, there may have to be a room for failure. Yes. How do you approach failure? And have you reached such a point of stature where fear of
3: failure is no longer possible? I forget who it is. Some American scientists said, fail often, but fail quickly. Now, that's the key. So... You know, obviously, experimentation's all about failure. Failure is essential to it. It has nothing to do with stature whatsoever. You either fail or you don't fail. But I think one has to risk failure, but risk it and realize as quickly as possible that it is failure. You don't always, one doesn't always. But I like that technological kind of approach to it. You fail and fail quickly, realize its failure, and move on. Victoria says, can you tell us a little bit more about how your
2: Vanta black works are made, in other words, the process?
3: So um, at the moment, they're about this big, let's say 30 centimetres or so. The form has to be made out of metal, so it's, it's complicated, so it, it's a machined form. It then goes into what's called a reactor, and material is put onto the surface which something is done to. I mean, I I tell you, I don't know what happens to it, so I can't tell you. What I do know is that it's raised to a very, very high temperature. And what happens is that at a nano level, the particles are absorbing 99.8% of all light. So more light than is absorbed by a black hole which is supposed to be the blackest object other than this in the universe. I like the mythology of this, of course. What happens to the light is that it's absorbed and then turned into heat. So these objects are at a very minute level, warmer than the surrounding space. And I think that's rather fascinating. So this conversion of energy from one kind
2: to another. Just a very brief supplementary question on that, because we haven't talked about we've mentioned it, I haven't talked in any detail about the fact that you work with architects, you work with engineers. Yes. Is that part of the fun of what you do for your collaboration?
3: It can be fun. It can also be a pain. But yes, it can be fun. I make a lot of models. I love models. I like them because one of the things I said to myself, you know, a long, long time ago was, that part of one of the tools of sculpture is scale, as I said earlier on, but that I'm not afraid of scale. So a model is a great way of making something small that represents something really big. And I've done that a lot, a a lot, a lot. Um, So as you know, in in exploring this, there've been occasions when it's been good to work with engineers, architects, uh, et cetera, et cetera.
2: Just super, super quickly, when you're building something, creating something as big as what ended up in the, the Olympic Park,
3: mm-hmm.
2: how do you inv- how do you sort of envisage that? How does it work, the, 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 the move, the journey from the tiny model
3: to that? It's a whole process. We started, I say we, because I worked more or less from the beginning with an engineer called Cecil Balmond, who's a very, very, very brilliant engineer. Cecil and I... We discussed the idea that tall structures with a limited budget, as this was, are always tripods. So I put it to Cecil that what I thought might work would be, what happens if we try and get a piece of spaghetti to loop and stand up? Will it stand up? Can we get it to stand up? And then what we found was that we had to have a very particular kind of engineering that could only be done by computers. So, so we made a whole series of models, lots of models, lots of propositions to ourselves about what was needed and eventually settled on, on something which was approved by the people. And then we had to go through this very complicated process of engineering it so that it could actually be built and take all this, the stresses in this spaghetti form. Final question. Times of crisis can be the springboard to
2: create art. What can we hope to see globally in the next few years? How
3: important will the arts be to the recovery from the pandemic? The arts have clearly suffered a huge, huge setback. During museums, theatres, um, music halls, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, have been through you know huge period of difficulty. It's beholden on us as artists to now find a way, but we have hurdles. One of them is that artists, my kind of artist, I'm talking about um, visual artists, on the whole, we have succumbed to rampant capitalism. Everything is for sale. Everything is for sale. And everything is out there being made in a way as commodity. For sale. It is our tradition, let us say modernism and postmodernism, have taken, especially modernism, but even postmodernism, have taken it as our tradition to find the radical individual. If it's for sale, how the hell can it be radical? So we have to reassess our willingness to sell stuff to the tyrants of this world, and onward, and reassess ourselves in relation to commodity, what we do, and its objectness. Very, very difficult problem. It's a cultural problem that some may argue points to the end of culture. And I think we have to be very, very careful how we negotiate that. The pandemic, on the other other hand, for me personally, has been a fabulous period of, I dare I say, of quiet, where I have had very few engagements in the world. I've been able to go to the studio, my little studio here, every day and just let this daily practice have an uninterrupted life. I must say I've loved every second of it. It's, it's what, I, what I intend to continue to do. Here's hoping for a better
2: world and a world filled with more and more art. Thank you to everyone who, who turned up. Thank you to everyone who asked questions as well. Really important. Some really, really good ones in there as well. Loads more How to Academy events to come. As I said, Anisha's going to be exhibiting in Oxford in the autumn and then at the Academia in Venice throughout the Biennale next spring. So, loads to look forward to. Anish, it's been a pleasure. It's been a privilege. Stay well
3: and stay safe. Thank you, dear Matt. And thank you all for listening. Bless you
1: all. This week's podcast starred Anish Kapoor. The presenter was Matthew Stadlin. It was produced by Esme Bright and myself. And the editor was John Doughty. If you enjoyed this week's show, why not sign up to our newsletter and find out more about our upcoming programmes? We're back in London with live shows this autumn, including Stephen Pinker, Lady Hale, and Emily Ratajkowski. And we're online too, with nightly live streams. Find it all at howtoacademy.com. See you next week, and thanks for listening.